Well, I'd like to welcome you all here today to the Army Heritage and Ed Education Center and to our wonderful program and our new blockbuster exhibit, um, Kapow Boom, Understanding the Soldier's Story Through Comic and Illustrative Art. It, uh, my name is Molly Bompain. I'm a curator here at the center. I'm also fortunate enough to run the exhibit department and was the lead curator on the, tea, on the exhibit as well. And it was really a labor of love. It was so much fun. You know, we're lucky here at the center to have um, a leadership structure that allows us to really explore different ways to bring the soldier story and soldier experience to our audiences and how we utilize the collection and how we look outside the collection. And I'm also very fortunate to work with um, such a great group of museum professionals. We've got two of them here with us today. We have Amanda Womack and Elizabeth Loomer here. And they just recently joined the team. And boy, did they hit the ground running to help make this, um, this wonderful exhibit a reality. And I'm also lucky we have um, Stephen Semmel, who built one of our most, our largest and richest online experiences based on this exhibit, so which enables us to continue the story and also bring this exhibit to a worldwide audience. And then we're fortunate enough to have a dyna like dynamite team of master craftsmen. Our fabrication continue to surprise me each exhibit with what they're capable of and how they help bring a vision to life and create a beautiful space. Um, and our mission here, and to all my colleagues who helped with the exhibit, and their enthusiasm, their assistance across the organization, thank you to all of you as well. And uh, you know, one of our main missions here at the center is to connect the American people to their army. And we're allowed to do that and fortunate to do that in different ways. And when I think about connections, this exhibit is all about connections and how we connected with different for example, the Center of Military History, our colleagues down that, we connected with them to bring in one of our largest art loans that we've brought to the center. We're able to feature artwork from Yank Magazine and Stars and Stripes, where you see comic and illustrative titans like Bill Malden, um, we've got George Baker in there, we've got Dave Brager, we have, um, we've got Wally Walgren, World War I comic artist, we have Bill Keen, Family Circus. I think a lot of us remember him <laughs> from the funnies on Sunday. And we also have, um, we've got Milton Caniff. So these big comic and illustrative titans from that world. And then we're also able to make connections with Marywood University. We had a graphic design intern design, Marlena Bompain, who's here with us today, design our lead exhibit graphics. We made connections with Carlisle Arts and Learning Center. We've got Catherine and Avia here today, who, um, who in August, we will be exhibiting a version of this exhibit in their space in downtown Carlisle, and we'll be able to connect with their audiences as well and bring their audience in, in here. So we're very excited about that. We've connected with Joe Craig at AUSA to bring in their graphic novel series that highlight Medal of Honor winners and showcase all the different ways that people are connecting the soldier experience and the soldier story. And then we also look at um, some of the modern artists as well. We look at Kai Crumbar and Alex Campy, who are giants in the comic and illustrative art and graphic novel series. And we look at um, Tyrone Jackson, Garrett Gunn. We look at grassroots efforts that have used comic art to reconnect veterans when they come back from a deployment or when they retire. And so we're very fortunate to make these connections. And they shed a lot of light on the experience and allow people different ways to understand the dynamic life of an experience of a soldier and understand the soldier's story. And we, we're fortunate today with those modern comic artists or cartoonists 
the reason we're all here, Steve Leonard is here to join us, and he's going to tell us about Doctrine Man. He really needs no introduction. With the social media following of almost a quarter of a million people, he is a main part of the soldier experience. And allow us, when we look at his, his artwork, his cartoons, we get an understanding of Army life, Army staff life. And it's been really, we were excited to, that, he, that he wanted to collaborate on this exhibit. We're excited that he's here today. And I'd like to thank you all for coming. And I would ask you all to please help me welcome Steve Leonard to the podium. Lord, to you. Thanks, Molly. So uh, before I get started, uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, this means a lot. And it's a great opportunity to do what I probably do way too much, which is tell stories and weave them into a lesson in some form or another. Uh, the reason why this is called stumbling to mediocrity, this was an accident. So if you had asked me 13 or 14 years if I ever thought this was going to be what it became with a social media following, uh, with cartoons posted in cubicles all around the Pentagon and other places in the world, I would have said no. I had no idea. It was an absolute accident um, and never, you know, never the intended outcome. And so what I'm going to talk about is not just how that got started, where it came from, what the roots were, to where I decided to take it. Once I realized that people were actually going to pay attention, then what do you do with it? What do you do with an audience once you have it? And once you have that audience's attention, how do you take that audience and then use that for something that's good? Not just telling a story, but telling a story that carries a lesson. And in this case, an awful lot of leadership lessons. Uh, 30 years in uniform, you're going to pick up a few things along the way. Uh, how do you convey all those lessons over time, and how do you do that through different media? Cartoons was a way to do that, but it also gets broader than that. Um, I'm a big fan of Mark Twain. I'm a big fan of storytellers. And what I'll get to here shortly is the storytelling side of me, which probably drags on a lot, but people bear with it. But Mark Twain, there were a few, very, there were a few better storytellers than Mark Twain. And he recognized that fact. Um, if you ever read three uh, of Ulysses S. Grant's biography, which is phenomenal, his memoirs, that Mark Twain was the one that convinced him to tell his story. Even on his deathbed, coached him through it, got him through it. Uh, Mark Twain, to me, is like the original storyteller for what we do as a profession in the profession of arms, that getting, getting us to tell those stories. And it means something, something specific. So, I know, laugh, right? This is about 1972 at Wallowa Lake, Oregon. Um, in my hands, you can't really see it, is a copy of issue 114 of Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, where uh, uh, the Blitzkrieg squad of Baron Strucker took on uh, Sergeant Fury and Nick Fury and, and were ultimately defeated by page 32. Uh, which if you got to page 33, you get a seven foot tall Frankenstein, uh, the, the flying bat, all the neat things you used to find in the comics. But yeah, that was me. Uh, obviously I was allowed to dress myself, which probably wasn't a good thing back then. Uh, but this is where it all starts. So I was absolutely hooked. That was the first comic book I ever owned in my life. And it led to reading comics and just absorbing comics to the point where my father, probably about two years later, three years later, forbid me to ever buy comics again, so I had to buy them in secret and hide them. Uh, he thought comics were bad, which I think a lot of parents of that generation probably thought. Uh, but they were great ways to tell stories. And 
What's really interesting about that, and something that, that Joe understands, um, the people who wrote those stories, those old war comics, whether you're talking about Sergeant Rock, whether you're talking about Sergeant Fury, the losers, they were all veterans. They were World War II veterans who came back after the war and used that medium of artwork to tell their stories. And so if you get into the war comics of the 50s and early 60s, they are absolutely veterans letting out what's inside of them. And the stories are gritty and realistic, and sometimes you, know, you can relate to them in a lot of ways. But it's important, and of course, this is, this is you know, 10-year-old Steve reading this not knowing, and then absorbing it, and then you know, it led to me starting to tell stories. Now, a little bit about me. That's my dad on the left, my Uncle Bill on the right. Those are my original storytellers of my life. Um, not to put too fine a point on it, but my uncle and my dad were probably the most, I, if I, if, is it okay to say, the most full of shit people you will ever meet in your entire life. They made up stories just to tell stories. And you never knew. I was almost 20 years old before I knew that parsley wasn't poisonous. <laughs> and because my dad had told me every time we went to a restaurant, don't eat the parsley on your plate. It's poison. It'll kill you. Never making the connection that if no one put poison on your dinner plate. And my uncle was the same way, but they had all kinds of stories. You put the two of them together, they told stories and they told stories, and it was, it was great family time. Um, and of course, that influences the kid with the comic book, right? And they were both characters. Um, miss them both to this day. Um, the next one, that guy is Ralph McAllister. Ralph McAllister was my fire chief when I was in college. Not a lot of people can say that they were firemen. I spent uh, the longest six and a half years of my life in college as a firefighter. Most people graduate in four, I stuck it out. I was on the, I was on the slow, pan, slow plan, but I had fun. I was doing this every single day. But the chief was also a great storyteller. And if you spend any time around the chief, and he, even by then he was still, God, he was into his mid-70s by then, still in the office every day, still telling stories. Um, my first major writing project, my first real story, was writing um, a 100-year history of the fire department in Moscow, Idaho, where I went to school, where Ralph went up in the attic and dug out uh, journals and meeting notes that went back well into the 1800s when the firefighters in that department were pulling horse-drawn uh, hose, carriage, hose, hose carriages. Uh, tell your story, tell your story, you gotta tell it. Tell this story. Um, but another one, another great storyteller that pushed me along my way. What you don't see is, and I couldn't find a picture of him when I wanted to, is a guy named Skip Stratton, who was, when I was in college, was, I was an engineering major and we had one English class we had to take, which was tech writing for engineers. And he was the guy who taught this course. And he to not just tell stories, document and publish everything that you tell. Find a way to get it out there. But he also told me I was the best writer he had in 25 years of teaching and the worst student he had in 25 years of teaching. I did well in his class, but he was always frustrated with me because how long are you going to stay in college? Are you ever going to graduate? And I did eventually. And then that leads to me. And I think that's, you see that picture in the exhibit. Uh, this is me a long time ago in a desert far, far away. My first, my first of four times in the Middle East, uh, 
That's Lieutenant Leonard standing in front of what I assume is a Saudi Arabian truck of some sort. Anyway, that's where I started to really collect the story. So if you follow the cartoons, the stories start there. Uh, I used to tell people that I was a casual observer of the human race. Um, I watched people. I didn't take notes, but it all recorded somewhere in my head. And, and I was in an interesting unit, and we did a lot of strange things that I thought, even as a 20-some-year-old you know, kid, I thought was pretty strange. Log those things away. They make for great stories later on. Uh, but that's kind of where it all goes. And then 10 years later, about 10 years later, and I use this cartoon. So when I was, I was a student in the Command and General Staff College in 1999, we were the millennium class of 2000, um, they were looking for somebody who would do cartoons for the, the CGSC yearbook. And I don't even know if they still do a CGSC yearbook anymore, but they did then. And they used to pull in old cartoons. I volunteered to draw the cartoons. I provided samples, some of which are very close to what you see in the exhibit, and was quickly told, my god, your work is so offensive, we cannot put it in a yearbook. Uh, that's, that's kind of arbitrary. It didn't seem right to me. Uh, but you, you take that with a grain of salt. I mean, OK. I didn't think it was offensive. I don't usually use too many curse words. But that idea was planted in my head. I could tell my stories through artwork. And sometimes stories are better told through artwork than they are through the written word. And you have to know the difference. So we get through CGSC, and there's no cartooning. Then I go into the School of Advanced Military Studies with anybody who's got military experience knows that's the second best year of your life in Leavenworth uh, vernacular, which is you get a small percentage of the more higher performing students in CGSC. You push them into the School of Advanced Military Studies. and I think it was 300 books and God knows how many exercises later, you produce somebody who's supposed to be able to think at a certain level, which inevitably produces two things, that gallows sense of humor that follows us everywhere we go, and a lot of stories. And that's kind of how I felt. That was me on, on day one. And, and that is, if you go to our yearbook from the School of Advanced Military Studies on page one, that's what it is. And we actually had someone in the school that we called the genius, but I don't think I talk about him here. Um, and it created a character named Bob. Doug, where are you? Where's Doug? Where's Doug? I know you're here somewhere. OK. When you ask about Robin Swan, so there's a reason why this is, this is the earliest, the earliest uh, start to show of Dr. Man that you'll ever see. And it was called Bob for a reason. On the first day of school, I'm walking in, I rode, I didn't walk in, I rode my bike, and I was putting my bike in the bike rack, and the director of the school stopped, and I was nervous. You know, I, here I am, a brand new major, and this, you know, the director is a colonel, and I introduced myself and say, oh, sir, I'm, I'm Major Steve Leonard, and he looked at me, he blinked twice and said, Bob. I'm like, no, my name is Steve. He had, he had me fixated with somebody named Bob Leonard, who was a, a, an accomplished author on operational art, which, of which I'm not. And from that point forward, I was Bob, and it became our class joke. So as we pushed into creating our own yearbook, we carried this on for a year without, without Robin Swan knowing about it, which infuriated him later on. But Bob was that name. And so Bob became a big theme. Another reason why this is funny, personally, and I was telling Doug this story beforehand, is 
In the School of Business at the University of Kansas where I teach and I'm an administrator, we have a coffee shop, a little Starbucks. And I usually go there at least twice a week. I visit with the students, you know, I tell them stories, we inter I entertain them. Well, there was one girl that I had met during the pandemic. And what were we doing during the pandemic? Wearing masks, right? So her name is Blake. Somehow I got Becky. I've called her Becky and she's never told me. And, and it became a Bob moment. And when somebody finally said, you know, her name's Blake. I'm like, no, her name's Becky. No, you misunderstood the first time you met her. I'm like, oh, I didn't do that. I did not do a Robin Swan, but I did. Uh, anyway, as we got through, Bob, Bob took on a life of his own. And I'm not doing my own artwork at this point. If you see my comics, my artwork is pretty abysmal. Um, so I was borrowing a little artwork from an underground comic called Red Meat. And then I would recast it and put it into the right context so we could use it in school. And uh, anybody here know Jake Kipp? So if you know Jake Kipp, this is very apropos. Yes. Jake did not have a lot of hobbies. And I think Jake, to this day, would say having a beard was a hobby. Um, but he was, he was one of our faculty in the school. And our, our whole yearbook was filled with this kind of stuff. Uh, and it's also the evolution of what comes to be later on, which is, I always felt like we were haunted by the ghost of Carl, Carl von Clausewitz. And so that became something central. It's lost on a lot of people today when you see, what, what, are we, what are we, dead Carl, right? Yeah, so that ghost always hung over me. Uh, and it, throughout the comics to this day, it usually says obnoxious things about con, uh, theorists of his time. Um, and the other characters will usually remind him that his wife actually wrote on war, not him, which makes for some interesting back and forth. And you also see what later became Doctrine Man. The first idea was to create a character that was so inane that no one would ever believe it was a superhero. Um, it starts here. I know, it's an obnoxious character. But I love this character, and a light came on when I saw that character the first time. That is the epitome of, of what it would become. Then I leave, the cartoons get put in the back pocket. You forget about cartooning for a while, back out into the operational force where I became, uh, I started to serve my, my time as a planner post school of advanced military studies. You have to give a, time, a year back to the army and which, during which time you're pretty much driven into the ground for a year. Um, and I started to watch again, I started to learn. And I was, at the time I didn't feel fortunate but at the time, you know, looking back, I was extremely fortunate to work in a climate where we had some fairly inept leadership, and I learned so much. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about patience, uh, perseverance, that uh, how much, how difficult it is to lead from behind when you're dealing with somebody who is, is not as capable of, of being in a leadership position as they should be. They don't always want to be led from behind. They don't want that help. And, Schwarzkopf's quote followed me from that point on, which was pay really close attention when you're dealing with leaders who are having challenges because there's so much to learn from that. And if you do it right, then you can take it forward. So this is, this is pre-doctrine, man. And yeah, I borrow a Simpsons cartoon. The idea that as I brought those two things together, if only I could draw cartoons, and I'm not a very good artist, and then use the stories that I want to tell. Because when I say sometimes those stories don't lend themselves to the written word, 
sometimes they don't, and they shouldn't lend themselves to written word because uh, they get personal. So cartooning gave me an opportunity to create characters that even though they might represent somebody, I would be the only one that knew who they represented. And it would allow me to tell the stories in brief in such a way that people could draw lessons from them. And that, uh, that idea of really took root from about 2004 to probably 2006 or 2007 when John Klug and I were doctrine writers at the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at uh, Fort Leavenworth which, oh, by the way, was also filled with some really interesting characters. Uh, material. Uh, anybody ever work in the doctrine community? We call that place the island of misfit toys for a reason. It was a great place to work, wonderful people, but some of the weirdness that I saw was just great, and it lended itself to this. And we had an environment where the director at the time, <coughs> excuse me, was absolutely supportive of the idea of pushing out cartoons. But it wasn't just cartoons, it was a little bit more. So let's take off. So about 2007, I'm scribbling around, and this is about the best I can do with artwork. And it looks a lot like, if anybody's ever seen the cartoon Cyanide and Happiness, that's kind of where I started, that kind of a, that kind of a, a, a taste. Trying to find my own style wasn't something I just wanted to do. I would have wanted to do was take this and do it in PowerPoint. Because if you've ever been a staff officer and had to suffer the indignities of using PowerPoint for everything, if you're gonna get it right, you had to use PowerPoint for a cartoon. And that takes a lot of work. Believe me, you create cartoons in PowerPoint, everything from how the eyes move to arms, gestures, it's really, it's really challenging to create all that in PowerPoint. Um, but that's where we started. Within a year, it started to take form and then ended up around, about there. So you'd ask yourself, why Doctrine Man, right? Why Doctrine Man? Because there is no more ludicrous idea than a superhero from Doctrine, from Army Doctrine. Have you ever worked in Army Doctrine? If you've read Army Doctrine, stuff is great. I love it. We live and breathe it. But the idea that a superhero would come from that world is idiotic. But it's important. And there you see, hey, look, I can do the eyebrow thing. I figured out the eyebrows by about uh, version three. <coughs> the obligatory tool belt. Uh, there's, there's things you take from other, other characters. The D became the doctrine signal that the chief of staff of the army would put on the roof of the Pentagon when he needed something written. He would shine the D up above Washington, D.C. And all the doctrine writers would come because that's what we knew we wanted, right? Um, borrow that from Batman. Uh, the tool belt, obviously, from Batman. Uh, but there's something, oh, then you surround him with a cast of characters. So this is only about a half of the characters. You got the guy uh, in the black hat, your, your typical military intelligence officer, uh, taken, borrowed a little bit from Spy versus Spy from Mad Magazine. Uh, people who wear reflective belts everywhere they go, which was at the time, reflective belts were a big deal. The Air Force characters entered in about 2011, 2012, when I was on a joint tour. Um, the doctor, anybody ever get ludicrous advice from their doctor? I have. It's very interesting stuff. And you add more characters. The guy with the little beanie on his head, the uh, drone pilot. Uh, <coughs> you'd find these people, you would meet them, and you would say, you need to be a character, but you'd never tell them that. Um, the old guy, 
which is probably me now. Uh, the, old, the old veteran guy who shows up who still wears the uniform or still puts on his PT clothes and goes outside and bothers people. Uh, has a cane, just in case you weren't sure. Um, all the little things. And then the guy right here is me. So as an army strategist, as an FA-59, that's me, the bright idea fairy, the good idea fairy, with a cigar and a cup of coffee. Uh, those were standard issue things for any strategist in the army. <clears throat> you can never get enough coffee. You've got to have the fairy wings because you are a bright idea fairy. And uh, you're like the, that became the, uh, the straight man for the comic. Everything else that happens around that guy is funny, but he's the straight man or says the things that shouldn't be said out loud. The social network piece of this was different. See if I get this right. Uh, <clears throat> so about 2007, 2008, um, we had that conversation about earlier about putting this on Facebook. And that's where it started. It didn't start there. It started in email. Um, I would send out articles, little cartoons. They'd go out to a small group of people. And some of the people in this room <laughs> were on that original distribution list. Uh, it went like that for about six months. I'd get an email, hey, can you add me to the distribution? One day, I get this thing back from uh, Outlook that says, you've exceeded the capacity of Outlook to send email because there's too many people on this email. And I was left with a conundrum, which was, do I put it on social media and open it up to the world? The good, good part of that is you reach a bigger audience. The bad part of it is it's social media. And actually, social media does work a lot like that. Um, and if you've been on Twitter, that's exactly, I, hate to, I hate to be the one to say it. I think that's exactly how Twitter is. It's, uh, I, have, I get notes from people sometimes who say, whatever happened to Twitter? And I can say, I remember Twitter in 2010 where I could go to Twitter and get news, follow specific people, and it was a really good positive feed. And now it's just, it's just it's crazy town, and I don't know why. Uh, it evolved like that over time. I think in some cases we gave voices to people who maybe shouldn't have had public voices. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I pushed out into that, and, and it blew up. Uh, and I found myself, when I say stumbling to mediocrity, there was never an intent to do this. I was very content with 50 or 100 people by email, and then we could have nice back and forth. When this thing hit close to 200,000, it's, it's a completely different animal. I mean, you get spammers, you get trolls, you get everything to where it's impossible to even cover and, and control a feed anymore. And I don't really try, but that's kind of where that went. The other piece of this was this. So I told you I borrowed, I borrowed things from different characters. And I borrowed something from Clark Kent. Uh, I initially did this, and I did this without any intent to not tell people who I was. I didn't care. It's just, you know, I'm just sending things out. I'm trying to tell a story, trying to help people get a laugh. Uh, <coughs> but the idea was it would be as ludicrous as Clark Kent. Anybody ever watch Superman? You know Clark Kent is Superman. Everybody knows Clark Kent is Superman, except for the people who are right around Clark Kent who can't figure out this great big guy who disappears every time something happens could actually be a Superman, right? The downside to this, I have met more people who claimed to be Doctrine Man in my life than you would imagine. 
I have met 06s in the Pentagon, colonels in the Pentagon who introduced themselves and told me that's who they were. And we would have great conversations. Where do you get your inspiration? How do you create the comics? And have great conversations with people who had no idea, because I didn't tell them who I was. No idea. Interesting world. And then people would get the idea that I was trying to maintain a secret identity. I wasn't. People who were around me all the time, they, they knew. Because we shared this stuff, and it was, a good, it was good for fun. Until the day that somebody pulled up outside my house, stopped, and took pictures of our house on Fort Leavenworth. And my wife, she said, that's enough. She's like, you either got to come clean, or, or we got to move. One of the two, because I don't want people to, to, to come around the house anymore. And so we came clean. Although people, I don't think, still get it. All right. So that got me to about 2015, 2014. I, I retired at the end of 2014 and took on a new life. Uh, that's me in the University of Kansas School of Business. And what I like to tell people, and I have already today, I have no business background. I've never taken a business class. I know absolutely nothing about business, but I'm the senior assistant dean of that school. And um, I don't know why. I honestly, I have no idea why. I think, I think we could say, well, you know, it's the whole idea that as a veteran, you kind of get your foot in the door, you show that you can pursue good ideas, that you can help things along the way, and pretty soon you find yourself in an administrative position, whether you want to be or not. It's kind of like being a deputy commandant, but at least you got, at least you got picked for the job. <laughs> you found yourself there. So does it continue? And this gave me an opportunity then to take years of work and to start to pull it together because honestly, my, the college students that I teach don't have any idea who Doctrine Man is, but they get a lot from the articles that I now produce. And they get the humor. Let's see, what's that? Oh, oh, no, I went too fast. So looking back, those first years produced a series of books. There's about five books out there that you can get, uh, including a, a coloring book, which was probably the best-selling book I've ever produced. Um, but it lays out the humor gives people a chance to look back. And then going forward, fewer and fewer comics. Like if you hang around nowadays, I don't really have time to produce the comics as much as I used to, but I do other things. Uh, those first two projects were projects with the Modern War Institute at West Point. Um, we took that first one, Strategy Strikes Back, and we looked at leadership and conflict through the lens of Star Wars. The second one we did, uh, Game of Thrones, did about the same kind of thing. And then John and Francis and I tackled that, which was let's go bigger, let's go bolder, let's look beyond just Star Wars, and let's pull those lessons. Remember when I talked about, you know, you learn more from people doing it wrong, but let's look bigger and broader, and we're getting away from the cartoons now, by the way. Uh, to pull in those lessons. What do we know about warfare? What do we know about conflict? What do we know about leadership, strategy? How do issues of character, diversity, inclusion, how do all those things start to affect us as leaders? And then look, through, look at science fiction broadly. Francis produced the only piece of fan fiction in that whole book. But it was enough to inspire people to go back and watch Battlestar Galactica. Uh, John and I, we wrote about the, uh, the battle from Star Trek II and how uh, practitioners and academics, how, strategy, how strategists and tacticians don't always come together, how, how, there, how there's a conflict there and how that plays out. Uh, you saw other you know, 
36 authors, all with different perspectives. Uh, where does that go? And this is how it relates to here. So this is our next book that comes out in the fall. We're still debating the title of this because our publisher is afraid they're going to get sued by Marvel if we use that title. Um, but we do the same things that we've done, but we put it uh, in the lens of the superhero genre. So you look at that. Um, John, what did you write about? Doctor Strange. Cyber Warfare. Uh, I wrote about the dark side of all this. So how you create, uh, they used, uh, they actually used villains in superhero comics, redeemable villains to show that people actually can be saved, they can be redeemed, they can be given a second chance. Very strong leadership connection there. Uh, fun stuff to write. And if you go out in the exhibit, you see superheroes out there. All those people have stories to tell. The ones that you, that you highlight, those people are superheroes. Absolutely. And they have stories to tell. So how does this end? I don't know. If you had asked me two, three years ago what I was going to be doing, I would tell you I was not going to be doing this today. I had decided to step away from it all. You know, let's, let's, let's get serious about academics. Um, take on an academic lifestyle. It hasn't happened. Because it keeps calling me back. It's all about the story. And the reason why I go here is this is when we talked about stumbling to mediocrity, leadership, storytelling. So you know how a doctrine superhero came to be, but what, what does all that matter? Why does it matter? What's the so what behind it? We're all storytelling people. Who here hasn't told a story to their kids? Listen, listen to your, your, your mom tell a story or your dad tell a story or an uncle. We tell, people, we tell stories all the time. And what do those stories do? Everybody's story helps us bring, bring us closer together as a people. So this story today, you know, interesting or not, it will bring us together as a group of people. We, we have a chance to engage, to talk to one another. Um, big one. Narrative history. So if you don't preserve the stories of your family, if you don't preserve your stories, who will? They're going to be lost to time. I still tell stories to my kids, and they laugh when I tell stories about my dad and my mom. Um, uh, and it never stops. But it's constant, so it's, it's in their minds and they know it. And I also write a lot of it down. Those, those compelling stories, and I think we talked about this earlier, the whole idea that this also helps you to coach, teach, and mentor. Because if you can use that story to make a point, people pay more attention. And it's more meaningful if you can put that in a context that they appreciate. Um, so I do, I do all three of those, and they're all three very distinct, different things. Um, I don't mentor a lot of people because, honestly, if you want to mentor people, it takes an awful lot of time. It's an investment on both ends. Uh, I do a lot more coaching, especially with students. But what I, what I think I found most interesting about moving on to a second life is I deal with students every day that have no connection at all to the profession of arms, and yet they want to be mentored by somebody who has our level of experience and our level of knowledge and the wisdom that we gain through that experience. They need that. They want that. Uh, I, I almost joke when people, 
You ever see the articles that talk about how bad Gen Z is? I spend every day with Gen Z students, and, and what they ask is something that we should all be able to do. They just want to know the why. Tell me why this is important. And if I can't tell why it's important, then maybe it's not important. They don't ask for a lot. And honestly, if they, they're, they're no different than us, just a generation or two separated, in my case, too. And those stories capture our legacy. So what's, what's the legacy that you want to leave behind, and how do you do that? Um, I have family members all over a wall in our basement. Uh, there's no real stories to them. They're just pictures on a wall, which is sad because I'd really like to know. You have the opportunity to capture those stories and do that. On the other side of the coin, write it down. So who actually sits down here and writes their stories? That's, it's, not, it's not a common thing to do. Anybody keep a journal? I don't keep a journal. I probably should, but I don't. But I do write an awful lot, so I think I've captured that fairly well. But you've got to write it down. If you don't, you lose it. Be authentic to yourself. Uh, I tell everybody that. It's, it's actually a, a very important thing to be able to do, stick things, stick things in your voice. If you talk in a unique way, continue to write in a unique way. Don't try to be somebody you're not. And I share, I share copiously with other people. Why? Because I need feedback. And then tell your story. So how do you tell your story? I've done it through cartoons. I've done it through short, write, short form writing, long form writing. But you continue to tell those stories. If not, they're going to be lost to time. And if somebody's going to wonder who you were, you're going to be a picture on a wall somewhere, and somebody's going to, I wish I knew his story or her story. All right. So that's the fun part. Anybody have questions? You can do any of them. And ask, if you do have questions, please raise your hand and join and bring you a microphone. Questions? Please. Have you ever read or are you familiar at all with Art Spiegelman? I don't think so. Oh, I know. I, I, did, I didn't know the name, but I know the work. Oh, yeah. I picked him up in New York City and brought him back here to Dickinson. I lost track of the stories. And they just all tied together. I, a fascinating person. When I was teaching at the University of Montana doing ROTC duty in the 90s, I had the opportunity to do that with Stephen Ambrose, the historian, when he was still alive. Same experience. A, a, a drive from Helena to Missoula and you know, 150 miles or so and he just talked the whole way. And, and that was somebody who, as a historian, I, I think he gets a fair amount of criticism, but the guy could take dry history and really make an, a compelling story. And it was so readable. It was fun. You look like you're happy. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody? It's a free-for-all. Somebody's got to have a question. Jeff Adams. So, Steve, uh, i got to ask you. We used are, to work together, by the way. For a brief time. I, I, was, I relieved him in Iraq, so he was really happy to see me when I showed up. I uh, waited for you. He waited two I waited you for waited, you. You waited, two you waited two months for me to show up. I waited two months for you. You did. You did. So, anyhow, uh, 
question I've got, you mentioned Sergeant Fury briefly. What are your favorite military comics, war comics? Uh, so if you, if you come into my office at the university, across above my desk there are five framed comics. One of them is that Sergeant Fury issue. They're all issues from back in the day. You get the losers. You have the haunted tank, which is kind of controversial today because you know the the history behind the haunted tank, and in fact, it was haunted by the ghost of Jeb Stewart. Well, you know, Confederates being what they are, yeah. Um, uh, All American War, which is a really old one, um, and then um, God, I can picture it, but it's it's escaping me. But you get the idea. All these comics are from the 50s and 60s. You walk in my office. That's the first thing you see. And it helps set context for conversation because then people, they don't see that in any other faculty member's uh, office. You walk in and it's a completely different experience and then it allows us to have, to have story time and to impart some lessons and, and be very genuine about that to the point where it means a lot to the students. Although, you know, they walk in and they see comic books, it freaks them out at first. No more so than some of the prints. I actually keep the comics and then on the opposite wall is a portrait um, from Little, uh, little Round Top. And um, I use that as a teaching point for the students, too. It's, you know, what do you do when you're outmanned and you're outgunned and you're about to lose? You fix bayonets and you fight like hell. And that, as, a, as somebody, as a strategist who teaches strategy, I don't want the students to ever lose you know, you don't give up, you fight, you fight, you fight. All strategy is competitive, there's no friendliness to it. It's a knife fight, be ready for it. Sir. <laughs> yeah, what was it? Uh, was it f- How much was it, like f- billion or something? I don't know, more than I have, that's all I know. Had a lot of money. See, uh, thanks Sir. for joining us today. Um, Are we long? I, I, no, I think we're okay. Oh. Uh, it's one of the privileges of being in charge here. Uh, <laughs> we get all the time in the world that you're willing to donate. Uh, you know, some of your early comics uh, took the opportunity to really capitalize on satire, poke fun about some of the dumb things that are natural to the army. Uh, and some might just say, oh, he's picking on PT belts. Another would make a case that it's really about bringing about change from within by highlighting things that need to be changed. Could you kind of share some thoughts on that? That's, that's a great observation. And that was, you know, there's a couple of ways to impart a message on an institution that may be resistant to change. And I'm not saying the Army was resistant to change or the military in general, but there are some messages that are not well received. And, one of the reasons why comics were such a useful medium is I watched, uh, as we started the initial foray into blogging, I watched some fairly senior officers stumble into the La Brea tar pits where they would, they would, they would um, criticize policy or strategy or specific leaders in print and then find themselves in a lot of trouble. If you could take that same lesson and kind of take the personal part of it out and then just make fun of it. You could do it in a way that got the same message across but didn't land you uh, in General Dempsey's office at 1700 at Fort Monroe to explain why you, did, why you wrote something. 
And I actually watched a couple of 06s go down that way, and it was brutal. Um, and so being able to use that, and it was very specific. That's why, you know, in retrospect, I can write about some of that stuff, but in the moment when it's really important, a lot of times you can't just come out and say, this is wrong, we shouldn't do this, or maybe we should be looking at other, way, other things. There's a way to do that through humor uh, and try to compress that into three or four panels in a comic just so you get the idea across. And the, and the General Dempsey thing is really funny. This was, I, I realized about, oh gosh, it was probably 2010 or 2011, that he, he was not a follower, but he had an impression. And I was working for General Bob Caslin at the time, and uh, General Caslin called me into his office, and, and he, and I don't know, I don't know what it was um, at the time, but he's like, well, General Dempsey's not happy because he thinks you're criticizing, and, and I hadn't criticized anything. I, I was very careful about how I, how I used that medium but General Dempsey had a different impression, and he actually stood down his plan staff for a week to try to figure out who I was. And, and if you remember at the time, there was a duffel blog story about it, but it was true. And I knew because people on, his, on that plans group would call me, and they're like, you know what we're doing this week? I'm like, yeah, I know what you're doing this week. Like, when do you want us to say something? And, and the fact that there were people there that every day would sit there and say, well, we can't figure it out. Until they finally figured it out, somebody said, wait a minute. He's the only guy who talks that way. He's the only one who makes jokes that way. It's him. And, but even then, I, I, I was very careful about how I, how I approach those things. And being able to use humor to, to illustrate a potential issue you know, we talk about, there you go, social media is an easy one, but I mean, you can use the same cartoon and talk about uh, dragging on the war in Afghanistan. I did, a, I did a cartoon series last year that had three people who got left behind after the evacuation of Afghanistan. Uh, and it's, it's just kind of like, if you ever watch the movie Black Hawk Down, the two, the two or three guys are like, hey, they left without us. It was the same kind of thing. These guys are on a post in Afghanistan and realize everybody's left. And, and, and it goes back and forth for about six months uh, as they try to find their way out of Afghanistan with expired military IDs so they can't do anything. Uh, it's all the kind of things that you would expect to find. Um, and then, um, you know, it, it ran its course, but it, it made the point was, you know, we kind of hurried our way out of there and a little bit more thought could have gone into that. But that's a, that's a great question. And it, I, I will always say that underscores a point that you can illustrate an issue out writing that out in such a way that it draws too much attention to yourself. I mean, I, I, I tell the story of sitting in a meeting once with General Odierno when he was chief of staff of the Army. And <clears throat> this is when I thought nobody knew who I was. And, and I was perfectly safe, and I was sitting against the wall. And he turned around, and he started to talk, and then he said, I hope nothing I say in this room ends up in a cartoon. And he looked at me, and I was like, <laughs> And my first thought was, oh, shit. And, but, and he knew. He knew. And, and I was stuck. And, but I also understood the, the importance of you're on the inner circle. Nothing that happens in that circle goes outside the circle. It's a circle of trust. And so years later, I could poke fun at General Odierno, but I wouldn't do it at the time. I was very careful about that because I wanted to be able to continue to do what I was doing without having somebody investigate me. <laughs> Joe, you had a question. Ever, you know, 
were they fans when they called you in and said, great job, maybe sign an autograph or something? You know, if you know me, I, I, I know you're going to say it's hard to believe. My wife will say it's not. I am like a fundamentally introverted person. I do not like crowds. I do not like recognition. Uh, and I've been in that boat. Where, hey, would you sign my cartoon? And it's really awkward for me because I don't like that. And I don't, I don't want to be not thankful, but it's just uncomfortable. I don't like that kind of attention. Um, but yeah, actually, it was General, General Caslin, I believe, who we had gone to the Pentagon and came back, and we were sitting in a, uh, a military plane flying out of Andrews. And he just turned around and looked at me, and he said, you know, I knew you were doing this, but I didn't know that many people read he said every office he went into the Pentagon, there were pictures everywhere, cartoons everywhere throughout the Pentagon that people just hang them up in their cubicles and they got them through the day. And it really felt good to know that. Um, and the, the beauty of it is I used to do that every single day. I'd do it seven days a week, I'd create a cartoon. Uh, and, and the fact that those cartoons meant something to somebody somewhere. Uh, there you are, what did you say? Four years, got you through. Because the humor helps you kind of just like, yeah, this is our life. And, and you can relate to things, whether it's the person who steals all the reflective belts to, you know, uh, somebody showing up at 1700 and saying they need something, uh, 1700 on a Friday to say they need something on Monday morning, first thing. <sighs> you can't say no, but they can relate. And they, and they, and they all get that. Uh, little things like, um, Network problems. I've made more fun of, of, of it. Hopefully nobody here works in a G6. But the, and if you, just, just in case you were curious, it's the same on the outside as it is on the inside. Um, our classroom tech at the university is abysmal. And I can walk in. I usually have to show up for class a half an hour early to, to do tech checks on every piece of classroom tech before I teach to make sure that the stuff works, because it never works the same way twice. And I can go in the same classroom, I teach in the same classroom twice a week, and it's different every time I go in. Some days there's overhead sound, some days there's not. Sometimes it goes through a little speaker, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, sometimes the screens work, sometimes they don't. Sometimes, it's just, it's always something. I go in and, and the, the, the system has shut itself away from the network, locked itself out, and I can't get back on the network to pull stuff up. It is the same way, you know. We go into a room, we were sitting in a, in a meeting, every Monday morning we do a, a leadership meeting with the assistant and associate deans and the dean, and we would go in one day and they can't get the technology to work, and I made a joke about, well, I just talked to IT and there's a kink in the Cat5 cable, and only the ones are getting through, not the zeros, which is a joke from a cartoon, and they believed me. It's like I was back, in, I was back into my dad's mode, just absolutely making something up, and they believed me. And then somebody, you know, and I've got, and I'm surrounded by PhDs, right? Does that really happen that way? Like, what are you, stupid? No, it doesn't happen that way. I don't know. I don't work with this stuff. Yeah, see, I can tell stories all day long, so I'm sorry. I will, uh, I will definitely go there. You got somebody in the back? Uh, yes. So That's an excellent beard, by the way. Thank you. You're it, welcome. It, it happens from time to time. Mine's so, white. When, so, I, when I let mine grow, little kids come around and want to sit on my lap. Um, so Sorry, go ahead. my question relates to, in your presentation, you, you touched on that you had to find your illustrative voice, uh, not necessarily your some uh, oh, techniques yeah. from 
from other comics and had other influences in, in your life um, to build the comic. When you teach about communication and leadership, are there any other, um, any others works who you find yourself coming back to as touchstones um, who have influenced you in, in what you teach and what you try and portray now? Artistically, I wish I could draw like Jack Kirby. Because Jack Kirby was the, was the influence of my childhood. Um, and I mean, they call him the king for a reason. Uh, I wish I had that kind of skill. Maybe by the time I'm 90, I'd be able to do that. But it would take a lot of practice and time I don't have. Um, but definitely. And I grew up in that era where it was uh, Steve Buscemi, uh, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee's writing. And I, and I give Stan Lee credit for doing the writing during those times. That sense of humor uh, is definitely in everything that I do. I will try to, if I can get away with it when I, when I teach, use alliteration to the point of being annoying. Uh, the, the whole, like the Blitzkrieg Squad of Baron Strucker, little things like that, I will, I will lean on those tools because they're, they're great tools. Uh, and you think about how they told their, their stories. They were written a certain way. And if you remember the Marvel comics of the 60s and the 70s, they were funny. They, were, they never stepped away from the humor. Even in the middle of a fight, they were still humorous. It plays out in the movies somewhat today. But that gets to that being your authentic voice. Be your authentic self. If, if you feel like being funny, be funny. You can be funny in a serious situation. You just have to, uh, oh, that's 10,000 steps. Um, uh, but that's, uh, inspirationally, that's kind of where I come from. I was deeply influenced by Jack Kirby, because Jack Kirby did a lot of those early comics, and I was just absolutely fascinated by it. Um, when he left, this wasn't quite the same. And he carried a lot of really interesting comics. You think about what he did with the Fantastic Four back in the 60s. When he left the Fantastic Four, didn't do it anymore, that, that comic was never the same. It wasn't interesting. Does that answer your question? I can go around the world on that one. That's a fun one. I can, I, You're right here. Just, just say it. So I, um, folks online. I, I do have a curator question for you. Do you have a curator question? Yes, yes. Because for some of our um, audience members here and online who may not understand the scale and scope of your work, and you know, when we think of this cartoon in everyone's cubicle in the Pentagon, we start getting, like, have, have you... What kind of scale and scope, any numbers to how many cartoons you've, um, you've done as a Dr. Man? Are they I've in a collection? I've never somewhere? counted them. But no. I mean, I, you could probably get a ballpark estimate. Uh, every day for 10 years, so what's that? That's probably, there's probably five or 6,000 comics out there. Um, and I get, I get, it's funny because I get messages from people hey, can you send me the comic that has that in it? And I have to go back and say, you got to tell me what year it was. There's a copyright on everyone. So tell me what year it was to narrow it down because I don't have the time right. to go spend an hour digging through one that you liked. I will, I'd like to, but I, that's a lot of time. But yeah, there's yeah, probably about five or 6,000. I don't know if that's a lot. And doing it seven days a week was brutal, uh, but I did. I tried to do it seven days a week because once I realized that people were paying attention and wanted it, then the part of me that is a people pleaser wanted to continue to please people until I couldn't please people anymore, and then it was too much. But 
Yeah, I think I, I think I dropped from seven after about five years down to about five days a week, then two or three days a week, and you know, now if I get inspired, and I still get email from people saying, you should make a cartoon about this. You are welcome to create your own cartoons. Absolutely welcome to create your own cartoons. Yeah. Sir. Uh, Chuck Allen here at the War College. I know your name. I know yours. That's cool. <laughs> Has there ever been a, a cartoon that you ever retracted or regretted, regretted that you put out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For, for an example, and what would be the criteria um, for that? So it was uh, Dwayne. I don't know if you know Dwayne Wagner. Dwayne Wagner pointed this out to me. I had a character at one point that was based on our command sergeant major in Iraq. And I tried to make it true because he was a guy that actually wore three or four reflective belts a day. And um, he talked, he had a very unique form of talking that didn't make any sense. And if you ever watched The Simpsons, you know the whole thing with Cletus, the slack-jawed yokel. Um, and I created that character. And I literally would, like, here was a situation with the sergeant major, and here's what he did. And, and, and uh, it was an African-American NCO. And Dwayne said, that seems kind of racist. And I went back and looked at it, and it's like, it could be considered that way, so pfft, that character died instantly. I, was like, I, never, I never brought him back, and I certainly never brought him back with his accent. Um, but it was just who he was. It had nothing to do, he didn't talk like anybody I'd ever heard in my entire life. He would use words that weren't words, and you'd listen to him, and it was, it was absolutely fascinating. Um, and he was actually the subject of probably one of the better practical jokes that I ever pulled in life. We had, in, we were working on the Baghdad Embassy, and we had a, a joint operations center that was probably twice the size, three times the size of this building. And I went on Amazon and I bought an electronic fart machine. And I put it underneath his desk, close enough to his microphone that it would broadcast. And then I sat on the opposite side of the jock, and when every time he talked, I would push the button. <laughs> And within about 10 minutes, the entire operations center was just, they were just gut rolling. And it was terrible. It was awful. I should have been ashamed. But it was so much fun. And that, that, that machine made its way into my granddaughter's hands, who is six years old. And now she puts it wherever her mom sits when they come to visit. And then goes and sits on the other side of the room with the button and with her mom. So... Anyway, that's a good question because, yeah, there are, and, and it's funny, I go back and look at cartoons. I ran one earlier this week that is probably the only political cartoon, the closest thing to a political cartoon that I ever did, and I floated it out there to see, uh, to see how it would be received. And the little short guy uh, with the reflective belt is working on a computer, and this is back around 2016, 2017, and, and he's talking to the Good Idea Fairy, and they're having this back and forth about uh, Donald Trump and hands. And the little guy looks up and he says, I don't even have hands. And that was the punchline. And uh, <laughs> I was curious how people would take it. And it, which, which is a reflection that I know that I have some people in the audience who don't have that kind of a sense of humor. But yeah. Every once in a while, I run across a cartoon like that. That uh, it's a reminder that sometimes they don't always click. And that—that's the other thing is if you try to be humorous and extend humor, not everybody thinks what you think. Not everybody agrees with what you think is funny is actually funny. And it, sometimes you can cross that line, especially if you try too hard. Haven't we all had a story? Oh, I—I I was going to go down a story. I had one that 
during the Gulf War, I don't remember his name, but it wasn't that he couldn't communicate. It was that his behavior changed when he put on his load-bearing equipment. And he would do really bizarre things. And so I would sit in the back of our talk. And when he put it on, he would, he would do things like flap his arms. He would do, he would do all this stuff. And I would mimic voices. And we, I would tell people he was possessed by his, by his web belt and LBE. And it was telling him to do things. And so we ended up in the same boat where the whole talk is laughing. And he has no idea why they're laughing. It's because I'm the smart ass in the back of the room going, Harold, flap your arms. And he would do this. He would flap his arms. <laughs> Harold, scratch your head, and he would scratch his head. And, uh, yeah, so we've, we've all had that. Uh. All right, folks, we have time for one final question, and then Molly's going to take over and uh, conclude the program. So we have one final question. Uh, thank you very much. I thought one of the most interesting things you said was when you met people who said they were doctrine man. And I kind of wondered about uh, what would... What do you think would possess somebody to do that, number one? And then what was that conversation like? And then I guess finally, does that say anything about the culture of senior field grade officers? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, when I say it was awkward, it was, it was awkward and entertaining at the same time. Um, so I inherited my father's ability to keep a straight face in those, in those situations, which is really good, um, and then just pepper them with questions, right? So you'd see how far, how far will you take this? Because I know that you're not who you say you are, and I know that you don't do this. And then we walk away and have the conversations. What on earth would motivate you to tell people, um, you know, I invented the question mark. Why would you tell people stuff like that? I, I don't understand. And, and I, I think it's maybe, you know, you could say, well, there's somebody who wanted the attention, who was hoping to get some and I never followed up and asked them, why would you do this? I just let them, I would walk away letting them think that I actually believed what they told me was true. And then we would laugh about it. And this usually happened when I would travel a lot. So this was, this was Miller discussions going home when I would tell my boss, yeah, you wouldn't believe that guy. Really? He told you that? Oh, yeah, flat out. I don't know. Different people do different things. And... I think that's something that I actually try to do a lot of, is try to figure out why people do the things that they do. Uh, it's been a fascination for me my whole life. It's not just that you do something. I want to know why you did it. That's one that I've never f answered. And I would have to go back and pin a couple of these guys down. Um, but it's, 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 uh, there's still probably about every six months I get a note from somebody who said, hey, it was really nice to meet you at this thing. I'm like, I was never there. I don't know who you met, but it wasn't me. Um, well, you know, I met him. You know, he's... Older guy, got a beard. Like, I don't have a beard. He's got a beard. I don't have a beard. <laughs> uh, but it's that kind of stuff, right? You know, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. I know that doesn't answer the question. I have no idea why people would do something with that. I'd like to know. Why do people claim that they're veterans when they're not veterans? Why do people do a lot of the things that they do? Well, it's uh, bizarre. The show is yours, ma'am. Well, Steve, I, we can't thank you enough. It, what a, it was a great talk. And it's something really... And um, no, it was a special talk. Um, 
And in behalf of our leadership, I've got a coin for you now. <laughs> Thank, thank you, you very much, Yeah, Molly. no, thank you very much. And we'll be in the gallery. I thank you all for coming, and we'll be in the gallery to answer questions and talk about the exhibit. But we appreciate all of you coming out and um, enjoying the talk with Steve and our talent here and keeping track of all the events we have here and new exhibitions and our programming and content online. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon. So thanks so much for coming out today. Appreciate thank it. you.